It all starts in London in October 2005. The overcast sky has turned the Thames a slate grey. Photographers line a jetty, waiting, and three Royal Navy speedboats shoot along the river and under Tower Bridge, which is the bridge you're thinking of if I say London Bridge. On one of those boats is a man in a suit and sunglasses, although the look is slightly undercut by a life jacket that he has to wear due to safety regulations. When the boat docks, he loses the life jacket and poses for the photographers alone before being joined by three people, director Martin Campbell and producers Michael G. Wilson and Barbara Broccoli. They take a few photos together and then head into a press conference. Ladies and gentlemen, meet your new James Bond, Daniel Craig. This was the first time that producers Michael G. Wilson and Barbara Broccoli had launched a new Bond without their father and the Bond franchise patriarch Albert Broccoli, better known as Cubby. Cubby had produced the very first Sean Connery Bond film, Dr. No, back in 1962. And while he had slowly ceded control of the franchise to his daughter Barbara and stepson Michael, he was still heavily involved in Goldeneye, the first Bond film he didn't produce and the last one made in his lifetime. Goldeneye had also introduced the last Bond, Pierce Brosnan, and Cubby Broccoli had had the final say on the casting, reportedly by tapping his cane on the ground during a meeting, just once, getting everyone's attention and saying, we should go with Pierce. So while Barbara Broccoli and Michael G. Wilson had technically been running the Bond franchise for 10 years in 2005, when it came to finding a new Bond, they were newbies. Casting Daniel Craig was also much more difficult than Wilson and Broccoli had anticipated. Initially, Casino Royale was actually written for Pierce Brosnan, but the origin story angle of the script and Brosnan's high price tag pushed Wilson and Broccoli to look for a new bond for a new age. It took them 18 months to find Daniel Craig, who didn't really want the role. But when they'd finally convinced him to read the script, the pared back, almost brutal version of Bond really got to him. Here he is in 2005 at that press conference where he was first announced as the new Bond. We've got an incredible script and that's my first line of attack. And uh, once I'd read that, I realised that I didn't have a choice. I had to go for it. At that first press conference, Daniel Craig was subjected to the full array of bleak UK tabloid questions. Who would be your ideal Bond girl, Kate Moss or Sienna Miller? Could you tell me what sort of girl would be your ideal Bond girl, both looks and personality-wise? Have you practised any of Bond's lines to yourself in the mirror? (laughs) Or to anyone that you know? Honestly? Yes. No. And the coverage after this press conference largely fixated on the fact that Daniel Craig was blonde. Very little of it mentioned that Casino Royale would be directed by Martin Campbell, who'd already revitalised the Bond franchise once when he directed Goldeneye in 1995. And while Craig praised the script, there were very few mentions of the fact that it was written by Neil Purvis and Robert Wade, who'd also written the last two not-great Bond films, The World Is Not Enough and Die Another Day. It didn't even Raider mention that the script was being rewritten by Paul Haggis, who at the time was on a two-year Oscar-winning streak. And almost all reports miss the fact that at this press conference in October 2005, before Casino Royale had even started shooting, Michael G. Wilson announced that Neil Purvis and Robert Wade had already started writing the script for the next Bond film. 
That film would be the 22nd installment in the James Bond franchise, and it would eventually be titled Quantum of Solace. And believe me, we will get into why it's called that. But long before it had a title, in June 2006, Wilson and Broccoli announced that Bond 22, as they were calling it at the time, would be in cinemas in May 2008, just 18 months after Casino Royale. Although it might not have been Wilson and Broccoli who chose that date, because this is a bit fiddly, but we should clear it up now. The Bond films are made by Eon Productions, which is the Broccoli's production company, but they are funded and distributed by MGM, which at the time was owned by Sony. So it's quite possible it was Sony who decided to release Bond 22 so soon after Casino Royale. And there was probably a reason for that tight scheduling. Across Hollywood, studios were banking projects, greenlighting pitches and buying scripts at a much higher rate than usual, because there was a strike looming on the horizon. It was broadly expected to hit in July 2008, and it could have taken writers, actors and directors out of action for months. So when Bond 22 was scheduled for May 2008, the studios behind the franchise, Sony and MGM, were making a pretty sound judgement call. Because even if a strike did hit in July, they'd still have the Bond 22 actors around in May for a press tour. And if the strike did hit, TV would be more immediately affected because of its tighter turnarounds and weekly schedule. So people would be more likely to leave the house and go to the cinema where Bond 22 would be waiting for them. But while they were sensibly hedging their bets, Sony and MGM and the Broccolis could not see the future. So while they got some predictions right, They got others very wrong. For years, when I thought of the 2007 writers' strike, I thought of Quantum of Solace. It was probably the first film I knew of that was explained as a casualty of the writers' strike, most famously by Daniel Craig, who said in 2011 that, quote, On Quantum, we were fucked. We had the bare bones of a script, and then there was a writers' strike, and there was nothing we could do. And Craig isn't the only one who's spoken about the unfinished script. Here's Quantum of Solace's cinematographer, Roberto Schaefer, being asked about it by James Deakins in 2021. Didn't you start that movie without a complete script? <laughs> yes. That must well, have been unfortunately. really yeah. hard. Well, we had, it, was, it was tough, and it was really tough on Mark. Um, we started when the writer's strike happened, and we did not have a full script at that point, and it never really, you know, it evolved as we went on, mm-hmm. which made it tough. So since Quantum of Solace was the writer's strike movie in my head for so long... I thought it'd be the perfect place to start. The 2007 Writers Guild of America strike lasted for 100 days and cost the Californian economy an estimated $2 billion. And it cost writers specifically about $287 million in lost work. It went from November 5th, 2007 through to February 12th, 2008. And it's often cited as the reason that a show or a film went off the rails. But what was it actually about? This is Striking Out, a new season of Going Rogue about the 2007 Writers Guild of America strike. Over the series, we are going to be exploring the strike, its origins, its causes, its key players and its dramatic double crosses. But we're going to do that by looking at projects that were affected by the strike and were often affected as much by studio greed or wheeling and dealing as the actual industrial action from the Writers Guild. The strike came at a pivotal moment for film and TV history, kicked off by new technology and long-standing resentments. 
Some of the demands that the Writers Guild made sound really dated today. There was a whole thing about who got residuals for ringtones, but at the same time, these were important questions that laid the groundwork for agreements that are still in place today. I'm your host, Tansy Gardam. I'm a film critic and writer, and I should probably say right now that this is a pro-strike, pro-union podcast. That's just my bias. I think that people should get paid properly for their work, and the best way to ensure that is solidarity, join your union. But on that note, I am not a member of the Writers Guild of America, and they have not been involved at all in the production of this podcast. Like previous seasons of the show, this is a research and analysis podcast, not a first-hand account of the strike, since I was 13 and in Australia when it happened. One final bit of housekeeping before we get back to Bond. In this series, we're talking about the mid-2000s, more than 10 years before the first signs of a reckoning about power, privilege, and abuse thereof in the film and television industry. And there's quite a few people who we're going to talk about who have since been convicted, found guilty in civil court, or credibly accused of assault, abuse, or misconduct. This is a detail that cannot be ignored in discussing this period of Hollywood history, even if it rarely relates directly to the story of the strike. So across this season, when you hear this sound after a person's name, it means that they have been, for want of a better word, me too'd and there'll be more information about it in the episode description. And yes, that does apply to earlier, when I first mentioned Paul Haggis. There was always probably going to be some sort of strike in 2008. The fact that there was one in 2007 was a bit surprising, but most people in Hollywood were aware, if not prepared, for the strike. The reasons are a little bit technical and we're going to get into them a lot more across the series, but today let's cover some basics. Hollywood is a union town, and its unions or guilds are divided by craft. So you've got the Writers Guild of America, or WGA, and the Screen Actors Guild, or SAG, the Directors Guild of America, or DGA, and IATSE, which stands for the International Alliance of Theatre and Screen Employees, who represent pretty much everyone who isn't an actor, writer, or director. That's your four big unions in town. Now, the Writers Guild of America is actually two separate guilds. There's the WGA West and the WGA East, and which one you're a part of depends on which side of the Mississippi River you live and work on. Because Hollywood and most major film and TV productions are based on the West Coast, when I say the WGA or the Writers Guild in this series, I'll usually be referring to the WGA West. But screenwriters in the WGA East did also go on strike in 2007. And regardless of which union you're in, Hollywood is a union town. It has been since the 40s. And every three years, those four main unions, the WGA, SAG, the DGA, and IATSE, they all negotiate new contracts with the major studios and producers. The contracts are called Minimum Basic Agreements, or MBAs, and they set floors, not ceilings, for work. For example, the MBA sets the minimum wage that a guild worker can be paid for certain tasks, but that doesn't mean they can't be paid more. The MBA also sets what residuals are paid every time a guild member's work is reused, whether that's in TV reruns, DVD sales, or ringtones. The MBA also covers everything from exclusivity requirements to parental leave to what happens if an associate writer is hired as a subcontractor by a head writer and then that head writer is fired so the associate writer's contract is terminated by default. 
in which case the associate writer is rehired by the new head writer on a provisional six-week basis. The MBA is an enormous document. The deal that the Writers Guild would eventually sign at the end of the strike was 452 pages long. The MBA gets renegotiated every three years to cover basic things like inflation, but also major things like fundamental shifts in the industry. Contract negotiations can be calm and routine, or if the Guild thinks they're being given a raw deal in the new contract, Guild members can vote to go on strike, leveraging their crucial role in the industry to shut down production until the studios are willing to make some compromises. So how do you join a guild and why would you join a guild? Well, how is easy. You just have to do a certain amount of paid work to qualify for guild membership. For example, as a writer today, you would need to do 24 units worth of work for a signatory company, which is a company that is signed on to the minimum basic agreement with the guild. There's a lot of different ways to put together that 24 units of work. If you're hired to write a feature length screenplay, that's 24 units, baby. Congratulations, you can now join the union. But if you're hired to rewrite someone else's script, that's only worth half as many units as writing something from scratch. And if it's a polish rather than a rewrite, you're only gonna get a quarter. So that's how you join the Writers Guild. The next logical question is why? Membership costs money. You have to pay your dues every quarter as a percentage of the money that you make as a writer. So what do you get for that? Well, for one thing, solidarity, but on a more personal level, Guild members are guaranteed those minimum rights in the MBA. Minimum pay rates, residuals, and even things like business class flights if you need to fly somewhere for work. The Guild also determines who gets writing credits on films and TV, something we talked about quite a bit in the original Going Rogue, and having control over writing credits was a big part of why the Writers Guild was formed in the first place, because studio executives used to get to decide that, and they often decided it based on vibes and favours. But you actually don't have to be a member of the Guild to get a credit, or to get your residuals. There is one other big reason to join the Writers Guild, which is going to be really obvious to American listeners, but it was kind of an afterthought for me. Healthcare. Writers and actors and directors and all crew members don't have a consistent employer. Even if they work on the same show for 10 seasons, they're still not employees. So they don't get employer healthcare. The guilds fill those gaps. If you're a dues-paying member of IATSE or the WGA or SAG or DGA, you can get that guild's healthcare plan. You do still have to pay your premium on top of earning enough to qualify for the healthcare plan, but it's something. And there's even a fun fact about the Writers Guild healthcare plan. Here's writer and director Phil Lord. The Writers Guild of America, this is a true fact, consumes more mental health visits than any other healthcare collective in America. We are like a joke in the insurance game. I mean, I don't want to brag, but... As an Australian, I'd get 10 free mental health sessions a year if any of the psychs in my city were taking new clients. And all it costs is 2% of my taxable income, which is nothing, because I am a podcaster. So that's what the guilds are and what they do. The other question that we need to cover here is why would they want to go on strike? Well, the answer is complicated, but let's start three years before the strike, in 2004 and 2005 when the four main guilds all signed new contracts with the studios. These agreements made some members of those guilds pretty mad. 
The Guild boards were seen as sleepwalking into the same old deals, not advocating for their members and being too buddy-buddy with the studios that they were meant to be negotiating with. So in 2005, when the board and presidency of the WGA West was up for re-election, some members who were annoyed with the last contract decided to run for leadership. Which is how the Writers Guild West elected their new president, Patrick Verone, a comedy writer who was derisively described by studio executives during the strike as the third guy from Futurama, as if that is not the coolest possible thing to be. Verone initially studied to be a lawyer, and he still looks a lot more like a lawyer than a writer. He's a suit and tie kind of guy. And if you asked Matt Groening to draw you a slightly stressed lawyer, you'd probably get a picture of Patrick Verone. Verone had been in the Guild since the 80s, but he'd first really gotten involved in organising in the late 90s, when he was writing for Futurama and he was part of a successful campaign to get WGA coverage for the animation writers at Fox. Because writing for animation isn't usually covered by the Writers Guild, for a whole bunch of reasons that it would take a whole episode to get into. Maybe episode six? After the win at Fox, Verone became more and more involved with the Writers Guild, and more and more dissatisfied with their leadership. He was part of the negotiating committee for the 2001 and 2004 MBAs, which meant he was one of the writers in the room while the contract with the studios was being ironed out and he had a front row seat to the Writers Guild leadership just kind of signing what they were offered. So Verone and a group of like-minded Guild members ran for leadership of the Writers Guild West, and they were elected with an overwhelming majority. Here's Verone in 2007 explaining the issues that they ran on. So myself and a slate of 10 other candidates ran on a sort of three-prong platform to uh, organise... Uh, our membership and prepare us for the upcoming negotiation to also do external organizing, particularly in animation and reality TV, and and uh, third, to do some outreach to the other unions, Screen Actors Guild and DGA. Verone made it clear that he wanted to run the Writers Guild like a union, to increase organizing spending tenfold and actually push for a better deal rather than just agreeing to what the studios offered. And to run the Guild like a union, Verone chose David Young as the WGA West's new executive director. David Young wasn't Hollywood. He'd graduated uni with a BA in economics and worked for a while as a plumber before finding his true calling, union organising. Young worked with textile workers, carpenters and construction unions before being hired by the WGA as their director of organising in 2004. And when Verone promoted him to executive director, Young became one of the most powerful people in Hollywood. He was now in charge of the Guild's organising and strategy, but he would also act as chief negotiator when contract negotiations began. Between the two of them, David Young and Patrick Verone started an information and outreach campaign, doing town halls with Guild members, asking them about their concerns, but also informing them about wider issues across the industry, and why they might need to go on strike to force the studios into giving them a better deal. This organising and outreach program would end up being crucial to the success of the eventual strike. Because the last time the Writers Guild had gone on strike in 1988, it hadn't ended well. The Guild had fractured and a group of high-earning writers had broken away and threatened to go back to work unless the strike was ended for them soon. So the Guild leadership folded and signed a deal that had basically no wins for the membership. 
The failure of the 88 strike had hung over the Guild for nearly 20 years. So Patrick Verone and David Young knew that the success of any action they made in 2007 depended on the organising they did in the years before. Because he was an outsider, David Young was a divisive figure in Hollywood. Some people saw him as a tough, seasoned labour negotiator from outside the town, unwilling to press palms and play nice and always seeking the best deal. And some people saw him as an inexperienced interloper who didn't know what he was talking about. But more often than not, what people thought of Young came down to which side of the negotiating table they sat on. On one side of that table were the Writers Guild, and on the other side were the studios, or rather, their representatives. Because here's the interesting thing about Hollywood labour negotiations. I promise this is actually interesting, hear me out. All of the Hollywood unions are organised by skill or craft, meaning that your writers negotiate separately to your directors and actors, which makes a lot of sense, because the work of a writer is very different to the work of an actor or director. But that does also break up the collective bargaining power of Hollywood workers. If all of your writers go on strike, you can still film with your actors and directors. But when those guilds are negotiating with the studios and networks and production companies about their minimum basic agreements and all of their various contract work, they don't actually negotiate with, say, Disney or Fox or NBC. Instead, they bargain with the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, or the AMPTP, which is a group that represents more than 350 production companies. Or, in other words, the studios unionised. In fact, the studios unionised before any of the actual guilds formed in Hollywood. The first form of a studio collective, the Association of Motion Picture Producers, was formed in 1924, and the first minimum pay agreement in Hollywood was in 1929. Other notable things happened a bit later in 1929, and it's often argued that the Depression was what really pushed actors, writers and directors to organise into trade guilds. Or it could also be argued that it was the pay cuts that studios pushed on them using the Depression as an excuse while the studio execs left their own salaries untouched that pushed everyone into unionising. Either way, the guilds all formed in the 30s and 40s, despite a lot of effort from the studios to stop them. Fun fact, you know the guys who give out the Oscars, the Academy? Well, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences was started by Louis Mayer in the 20s as a more prestigious, invite-only alternative to unions, controlled by the studios. But even as attempts at union busting and union control failed, the AMPTP and its predecessors were always there as an extra backstop for the studios a specialised negotiating organisation that didn't represent one company, but all of them collectively. Also, small note while we're here, I'm often going to be referring to the studios rather than the AMPTP, because the AMPTP exists to negotiate for the studios and production companies, so everything they demanded during the strike was really a demand for and from the studios. So, with a lot of sabre-rattling from the Writers Guild and Patrick Verone about wanting a better deal, the major Hollywood studios were preparing for, if not actively expecting, a strike when their current contract with the guilds expired. They started buying scripts at a much higher rate than usual, preparing strategies to sit out the strike with a full pantry and wait for the guilds to come crawling back to them. 
But the studio's strike preparations, at least in the early days, always assumed that the strike would hit in summer 08, when the contracts of the Directors Guild and the Screen Actors Guild expired. Even though, because of a timing quirk on the last minimum basic agreement, the Writers Guild contract would expire eight months earlier, at midnight on the 31st of October 2007, as a spooky Halloween treat. But with all of Patrick Verone's talk about coordinating with the other guilds, most analysts initially assumed the writers would wait until summer 08 to strike alongside the other unions. By the time negotiations actually started between the Writers Guild and the studios in 2007, it was pretty obvious that things weren't going to end well and that the writers were likely to strike out on their own. But a summer 2008 strike was still everyone's assumption in July 2006, when the news broke that British director Roger Michel was in negotiations to direct Bond 22. Michel had worked with Daniel Craig on the film Enduring Love in 2004, but he was probably best known for directing Notting Hill. And he'd actually kind of been chased by the Broccolis to maybe direct Casino Royale before Daniel Craig was even cast. But he'd passed on the film after reading an early version of the script, saying that, quote, This one isn't for me. Thank you very much. Details about Bond 22 were pretty sparse when Michelle first became attached to it, but the Hollywood Reporter's sources at the time said that the film was based on an original idea from producer Michael G. Wilson, and that Eon Productions were now looking for a writer to adapt Wilson's idea. That original idea by Michael G. Wilson that Bond 22 was apparently based on is a bit elusive. Some write-ups suggest that the idea of the villain hoarding water was Wilson's idea, but I really couldn't find anything from the right time period to back that up. And this whole original idea and new writer to adapt reporting doesn't really gel well with Wilson's statement in October 2005 that Neil Purvis and Robert Wade were already working on the script for Bond 22. And they had... In fact, already been working on the script for Bond 22. According to Matthew Field and AJ Chowdhury's book Some Kind of Hero, Purvis and Wade's script was built around one big idea. That kidnapped boyfriend that Vesper betrayed her country and Bond for in Casino Royale? He wasn't kidnapped at all. He was part of Mr. White's secret organisation and Bond was gonna hunt him down. According to Robert Wade, the draft of the script that he and Neil Purvis first wrote picked up right where Casino Royale had left off, with Mr. White in the boot of Bond's car. Bond then pretended to hand Mr. White over to the CIA, but really let him escape so that he could track him, and Mr. White headed to the Palio horse races in Siena and was almost immediately assassinated by his own organisation. Bond then killed that assassin and took his next job, hunting down a woman in Libya who sold trafficked antiques that had been looted from Iraq during the war. Bond then infiltrated Mr. White's organisation, which, according to Robert Wade, was called Quantum and was headed by a villain named Dante, who was either an oil baron or oil adjacent. There were apparently some scenes at OPEC. Dante was also in cahoots with Vesper's villainous boyfriend, Yusuf Kabira. Kabira was eventually captured and tortured extensively by Bond, partly for information, but mostly for revenge. I also just want to note that this is how Robert Wade described his and Purvis's script in a 2015 interview, and I'm kind of unconvinced by a couple of the details that he gave. I'm not saying that he was lying, but I do think he might have streamlined a few different drafts into his description of the early script. 
The biggest thing is the secret organisation. Wade said that it was named Quantum in this early draft, which seems unlikely for a lot of reasons that we're going to get into a bit later in the unhinged conspiracy theory portion of the podcast. Neil Purvis and Robert Wade first came to Barbara Broccoli and Michael Wilson's attention in the 90s with their script for a movie called Plunkett and McLean, which Barbara Broccoli described as dark, witty, sexy and inventive, which is an opinion that very few critics shared. Off the strength of Plunkett and McLean, Purvis and Wade were hired to write The World Is Not Enough, then Die Another Day, then Casino Royale. In between Die Another Day and Casino, they also wrote Johnny English, which... Make of that what you will. Wilson and Broccoli seem to genuinely get along really well with Purvis and Wade. In a 2004 interview, Wilson said that, quote, Because of the way we work, a lot of writers don't want to work with us. A typical writing process is six months, which includes meeting two or three times a week for hours and hours. After we assign the director, the final three months are spent refining the script and meeting daily. You really have to get along with people. But Martin Campbell, the director of Casino Royale, did not get along with Purvis and Wade. He didn't like their script, so he hired Oscar-winning screenwriter Paul Haggis to rewrite it. And apparently when Campbell gave Haggis the Purvis and Wade draft, Haggis said, you don't have an act three. Would you like one? And while Roger Michelle didn't specify who wrote the thanks but no thanks draft of Casino Royale that he read, it was an early draft, so it was probably Purvis and Wade's. In fact, when Barbara Broccoli asked Michelle about maybe directing Bond 22, she sent him the shooting script for Casino Royale, which had been significantly rewritten by Paul Haggis. And Michelle described that script as marvellous and said that he would have agreed to direct Casino Royale if he'd been sent Haggis's script back in 2005. So it should come as no surprise that Roger Michelle did not care for Purvis and Wade's version of Bond 22. Although, Robert Wade put it differently, saying that everyone was very excited about their draft and that he and Purvis started working with Michelle very quickly. They did apparently all attend the Palio horse races in Italy together in August 2006, which was a rare location recce for the riders. But Roger Michelle also pitched his own version of Bond 22 to Barbara Broccoli and Michael Wilson which he later described as a, quote, multi-city quest, Bombay, Berlin, Istanbul, with a great bad guy who had figured out a way to bring the internet down. Planes would have fallen out of the sky, nuclear reactors would have gone into meltdown. Even as he pitched it to the broccolis, Michelle could tell it wasn't overwhelming them. Roger Michelle was not an obvious Bond director. His first love was theatre, and unlike a lot of directors who jump from stage to screen, Michelle kept one foot in both worlds, continuing to do theatre long after he was an established filmmaker. His films were small human portraits, not big bombastic action movies. But Bond directors haven't always been action filmmakers. Martin Campbell started out with softcore sex comedies and TV thrillers. Lee Tamahori, who directed Die Another Day, also did Once Were Warriors. The World Is Not Enough was directed by Michael Apted, the documentary filmmaker who did Seven Up, and who was also, from 2003 till 2009, the president of the Directors Guild of America. This will come up again. So while Roger Michel wasn't an obvious choice of director, the Broccolis still wanted him. And even if they weren't in love with his internet villain idea, they still supported it and hired Ocean's Eleven writer Ted Griffin to work on the script with Michelle. 
Roger Michelle was first publicly attached to Bond 22 on the 17th of July 2006. By the 9th of August, he was out. Michelle was pretty candid about his brief period on Bond 22, telling the Times in 2007 that, quote, In the end, I didn't feel comfortable with the Bond process, and I was very nervous that there was a start date, but really no script at all. And I like to be very well prepared as a director. The Bond people, who are lovely, are used to going into these massive productions in quite a chaotic way. Oh, we'll fix that later. I panicked about this. And it was starting to make me feel very, very unhappy about what I was doing and who I was. The more the money went up, the worse it made me feel. According to Michelle, on his unofficial first day on the film, with no script and a definitive release date less than two years away, he was put in a meeting with the team designing the film's video game. It was all too much. Michelle went to the Broccoli's and quit in the most English way possible, saying, I'm terribly sorry, I'm not going to do this. He later said that if the Broccoli's had responded by delaying the film until they had a decent script, he would have stayed. But by the end of August 2006, with no director in place, Sony pushed Bond 22's release date back six months to November 2008. This left a two-year gap between Bond films, which had been pretty standard in the heyday of Bond. While we're talking about standard Bond things, it's probably worth mentioning that, yes, Michelle was right. The Broccoli's creative process is usually pretty chaotic. Plenty of Bond films have gone into production without a finished script, and even Casino Royale had a really tight production schedule. It only started shooting in January 2006, and it was in cinemas in November. There was less than eight weeks to do the director's cut. But when Casino Royale was released in November 2006, it silenced all doubts about Daniel Craig's Bond. It slaps. Genuinely, the reason this episode has taken so long to make is that every time I go to check something in Casino Royale, I just sit down and watch the whole movie. And I think part of the reason that Quantum of Solace sticks out in pop culture consciousness so much as a disappointment is because Casino Royale is just so damn good. The action is tight, the plot shoots along at an incredible pace but is never incomprehensible, Lindy Hemming's costumes are immaculate, it makes long scenes of people playing poker feel intense, and it really situates you in Bond's headspace. There's this small early sequence that follows Bond tracking a text message. He checks hotel security cameras, he's cross-referencing time codes, and it's something that could very easily have been covered with one throwaway line, oh, we tracked the message. But instead, the information is drip-fed visually, and it makes you as an audience member feel so much more connected to Bond's mission. You feel like you're solving the case alongside him. Casino Royale was also the first Bond film that was really influenced by the more pessimistic, conspiratorial Bourne films. Screenwriter Tony Gilroy recently described his Bourne films as acoustic when compared to the bombastic action thrillers that came before them. And I think acoustic is also a really good way to describe Casino Royale. It's still playing the hits, but it's transformed for a new space. Daniel Craig's Bond is far more physical than his predecessors, but he also takes damage. And throughout the film, you start to see that the character of Bond, James Bond, is a character that Bond has to play to deal with the physical and mental toll that the job takes on him. Casino Royale was a critical success and a great movie. 
And it also made money. More than $600 million on a $150 million budget. Four times the investment. Eon and Sony had taken a gamble rebooting the franchise, and it paid off. Bond was relevant again. But even with Bond back, there still wasn't a director for Bond 22. Or a script. So with Roger Michel out of the picture, Neil Purvis and Robert Wade returned to Bond 22, handing in their draft of the script in May 2007. Wade said that this draft ended with Bond hunting Dante to a secret meeting of his secret organisation at the Brigands Opera in Austria, only to find that Dante had already been killed by his own organisation, leaving Bond with no leads, standing silhouetted on stage in front of a giant blue eye. This suggests that Purvis and Wade had either been on a location recce or at least been in discussions around it, since the giant eye at the Brigands Opera wasn't created for the film. It was actually part of the set of the opera's 2007 production of Tosca. The Broccolis had been circling the floating opera stage as a location for a while, and initially they wanted to use a massive skeletal hand from the year before's production of Il Travatore, but that set had been destroyed at the end of the opera's run. So the big blue floating eye from Tosca was really a case of happy coincidence, since it visually mirrors the gun barrel sequence and also looks a lot like Daniel Craig's eyes. This is one of the weirder things about scripting a Bond film, because even if you're not working with a book or a short story as source material, you're still working with the broccolis, and often a location or a practical production detail will need to be folded into the script. This sort of writing has a really long history in the Bond franchise. License to Kill is set in Mexico because it was too expensive to shoot in the UK or US, and Moonraker is set in space because Star Wars had just come out. I can see how this working style would throw a lot of writers, so maybe one of the reasons that the Broccolis like working with Purvis and Wade is because they're good at thinking on their feet and working practical production details into the story. Then again, I kinda need to question Robert Wade's memory of his draft again, because in 2009, Mark Forster said that this scene, the secret meeting of the secret organization, was scripted as taking place in a conference room. For instance, with the opera, it was set in a conference center with sort of a UN setting with several languages and Bond spying on the villains on Green and his and, and some of the other uh, villains. And I fa- found that not that interesting visually. So when I saw the opera setting, I saw the eye being set on the lake, which I thought was uh, a beautiful setting. And I thought it would really, it's very Bond. Speaking of Mark Forster, by early 2007, he was one of four directors being circled for Bond 22, along with Top Gun's Tony Scott, iRobot's Alex Proyas, and Terminator 3's Jonathan Mostow. Mark Forster is a Swiss-German director who looks, and I mean this in the best way possible, kind of like a modern Bond villain. He's got a shaved head, he's very neatly dressed, and he's quite fastidious about his work. He's very organised and very detail-oriented. And Forster had a pretty different background to the other potential Bond 22 directors. He'd made his name with Monsters Ball and The Kite Runner, and he'd never made an action film. He also had to be coaxed into meeting with Michael G. Wilson and Barbara Broccoli in the first place. Amy Pascal from Sony had worked with Forster on his last film, Stranger Than Fiction. And even when she set up that meeting, Forster was still reluctant to go. But when he mentioned the film to his long-term collaborators Roberto Schaefer and Matt Chesse, 
they both went nuts. I at first I didn't want to do the film and I thought it's not my genre, it's not really what I'm so familiar with. And then my crew around me, my editor, my cinematographer said, "Oh, they offered you a bomb that's film history. You have to do it." Right. And I said, "Okay." <laughs> Wilson and Broccoli later said that they wanted Mark Forster for the job because he could handle the more emotional elements of Daniel Craig's Bond, the storytelling and the character arcs rather than just the action. They thought that he could bring a fresh, new introspective angle to Bond. But Forster still wasn't sure. He actually had this one big problem to get past before he could agree to direct Bond 22. And ironically, his one big problem kind of proved that he was a true Bond director. He didn't like the Purvis and Wade script. Uh, so it, it started that there was a screenplay was, uh, at the beginning from two writers and when they asked me if I wanted to do the film I said I don't want to tell the story. And then I, after that, I, I said, but Paul Haggis, who is a director, writer, director, who wrote the Casino Royale, I thought I really liked what he did there. And I asked them if they would hire him, I would consider doing it. So. Paul Haggis was initially reluctant to write another Bond film, since he thought he couldn't do a better job than Casino Royale. And he also had another film that he was directing that was in post-production at the time. But in Haggis's own words, the Broccolis were insistent and they offered him a lovely deal. With Haggis on board, Mark Forster also officially signed on as the director of the 22nd Bond film. And while Neil Purvis and Robert Wade did end up with screenwriter credits on the final film, their work was essentially thrown out. In 2008, Mark Forster said that he and Haggis pretty much developed the script from scratch, and in 2009, Forster went even further, saying that there wasn't a script when he started on the film. And there wasn't a script, so there was a release date, and there was a, a date where we were supposed to start principal photography, but there wasn't really a script in place. While it's hard to know exactly when Forster signed on to do Bond 22, he had at most 18 months to script, prep, shoot, edit, and deliver the final film. I want to stress this a little more. Mark Forster, who had never directed an action film, whose biggest budget up until this point was the $30 million comedy drama Stranger Than Fiction, had 18 months to make a Bond film that had a planned budget of at least $150 million and would end up costing $230 million. And the November 2008 release date could not move again because Bond 22 wasn't just being funded by Sony and MGM. $75 million of the film's budget came from product placement and brand deals. This was a record high for the Bond series, and the brands that had bought space in Bond 22, like Heineken, Ford and Omega, would all be organising their own ad campaigns around the movie's release, featuring actors, stills and sometimes even footage from the film. And these brand ad campaigns featured Bond and the new film so heavily that to consumers, they actually functioned as ads for the film. This is true. Since GoldenEye, Bond movies have been able to basically halve their marketing budget through product placement. When you factor all that in, the product placement in Bond 22 was saving the studio about $190 million. But it was a double-edged sword because brand ad campaigns are much bigger and last much longer than a single film's marketing rollout. And shifting the film's release date would have thrown out the timing of all of those brands' campaigns. 
So delaying the release of Bond 22 would have meant screwing over the companies who were forking out a third of the film's budget and cutting the marketing budget in half. You couldn't do it. The release date could not move. So when Mark Forster agreed to do Bond 22, he was agreeing to a punishing schedule. He'd start a 23-week shoot in January 2008 and only have six weeks afterwards to cut the film. That's not to say there were only six weeks to go through all of that footage. The editors were working throughout the shoot, but Forster would only have six weeks with them to deliver the final cut. If you've listened to Going Solo, you might remember that the Directors Guild of America guarantees its members a minimum 10 weeks for a director's cut without any studio interference or even producer eyes on the film. And that's just for the director's cut, not a final picture lock. Forster himself prefers to have 14 weeks for a director's cut, but he'd be delivering a picture lock of Bond 22 in six. And on top of all of that, when he signed on to the film, Forster only had about six months to prep the film, to find locations, cast his leads, choose his crew, and completely rewrite the script. Forster wanted to make a more introspective Bond film, tunneling deep into 007's psyche, but the film also needed a plot. So Forster and Haggis sat down and talked through their ideas and found a common thread. You know, we wanted to make it about natural resources and how how obviously these those resources are, are dwindling and uh, one of the things is what i realized uh, in the last few years going to a lot of s- sort of parties or charities for green that you know people drive their prius but then fly their <laughs> private jets and and it's sort of this this hypocrisy that that we all all in a sense hypocrites and i thought it was interesting to have that villain who actually uses green and being green for for his own gain mm-hmm. and uh, because ultimately he's still a capitalist and and i think that's i just found it was an was an interesting theme also in regard to water you know so many countries don't have access to drinking water anymore and so in this new draft purvis and wade's villainous oil baron dante became dominic green an eco-philanthropist who used his greenwashed reputation to fund coups in south america and create artificial droughts to drive up water prices And Haggis drew further inspiration from the water war in Cochabamba in 1999 and 2000, when the privatization of the water supply in Bolivia's fourth largest city led to mass civil protest and police violence. There's this tendency when people defend Quantum of Solace to say that the film was prescient, that it predicted greenwashing and scarcity of natural resources like water, But I think it's important to remember that that shit was already happening. It was just mostly happening to poor people. And Forster didn't really have a chance to sit down and puzzle over Bond's psyche and resource capitalism with Haggis. He had to prep the film. He scouted locations across Europe and South America, feeding ideas back to Haggis on how and where to stage certain scenes. In August 2007, well before he had a script, Forster headed to Siena in Italy, to shoot the Palio horse races, without a clear idea of how the footage would actually fit into the film, but with a very clear idea that he wouldn't get another chance to film the races, and since they'd been in the script from the very beginning, the Broccolis must have wanted them in the film. And amongst all of this, Forster started putting together his crew. Roberto Schaefer and Matt Chesse, who'd talked Forster into taking the Bond meeting in the first place, were both rewarded with jobs on the film. 
Schaefer became the cinematographer and Chesse the editor, although he was joined in the edit bay by Rick Pearson, an Oscar nominee who specialised in editing action films like The Bourne Supremacy and Men in Black 2. The second unit director, Dan Bradley, was another Bourne veteran who'd done second unit work on Bourne Supremacy and Ultimatum. Just as a refresher, second unit is a second camera crew and production team, a second unit, who usually pick up shots that don't need the main actors. Things like establishing shots, non-face close-ups, and action scenes, which are mostly shot with stunt doubles. This means that the second unit and main unit can be shooting simultaneously to save time and money, but at the end of the day, everything shot by second unit is meant to fit seamlessly into the footage shot by main unit. On most major Hollywood films these days, second unit are something closer to an action unit. And the second unit director is usually someone with a stunt background. Dan Bradley was stunt coordinator on The Bourne Supremacy and Ultimatum, and Spider-Man 2. On Quantum, Bradley's action knowledge and experience really filled the gaps, to the point where his second unit basically acted independently to Forster and the main unit. Here's cinematographer Roberto Schaefer. On Quantum, Barbara and Michael tried to have us do storyboards on the action sequences, but that was with Dan Bradley directing second unit mm. uh, action, and Dan didn't want to do the storyboards. He didn't. He reacted <laughs> totally negatively to the storyboard artist and what he was doing. He was coming up with his own shots, so he got sent home, and Dan, you know, did it his way. And you know, he has a very specific way of doing his, especially mm -hmm. car action, which is brilliant. But Bradley didn't just dismiss the storyboard artists and shoot the action scenes his own way. He also wrote them. The first thing he asked Mark Forster was if he could take a pass at the action scenes in the script, and Forster agreed. So Bradley effectively wrote those action scenes, or at least a draft of them. Bradley's close association with the Bourne franchise also raised some questions. Bourne had been a reaction to Bond to some degree, but now it looked like Bond might be copying Bourne's homework. Daniel Craig came out swinging against this, saying, quote, I don't think it's like Bourne at all. Dan is here to do exactly what he's good at doing. He's just come off Indiana Jones. Are we going to be more like Indiana Jones? And Daniel Craig has a point. Bradley was there to do his job, and as second unit director, he was building on the tone and energy of the film that Forster was making, not just recreating his previous work. Forster wanted the action and the plot of Bond 22 to be relentless, or as he put it to The Hollywood Reporter, I was thinking the film should feel like a bullet. It starts and doesn't end until the last frame. You're on the edge of your seat. And that's what I wanted to create, and that's sort of the pacing I demanded of myself in the script. One thing that I do think it's worth noting here is that Forster's crew had very few people who'd done a Bond film before. Martin Campbell had brought most of his collaborators from GoldenEye back for Casino Royale, but on Bond 22, the only real returning creatives were casting director Debbie McWilliams, stunt coordinator Gary Powell, composer David Arnold, and The Broccolis. And, I mean, technically, writers Neil Purvis and Robert Wade. But, um, yeah. While Forster was prepping the shoot, Paul Haggis was churning through his script which he titled Sleep of the Dead, in reference to Bond's need to let the dead rest and let Vesper go, as well as Bond girl Camille's quest for vengeance for her family's murder. There's a couple of lines towards the end of the film between Bond and Camille that were presumably leftovers from when that was the title. Do you think they'll be able to sleep now? I don't think the dead care about vengeance. The big difference between Haggis's script and the final film was the ending. 
Haggis had Bond interrogating Dominic Green in the desert, not asking about Quantum or his evil plans, but instead asking, where is she? Cut to an Albanian orphanage run by nuns, where Bond sees a young girl, Vespa's daughter. Vespa hadn't betrayed him to protect her boyfriend. She betrayed him to protect her child, because Paul Haggis felt that the boyfriend motivation was a bit too thin. The audience then expects Bond, a tragic orphan himself, to take the child with him. But he instead decides the best thing he can do for this girl is to stay the hell away from her. He gives the nuns some money, and tells them to look after her, and meets M outside. This was, according to Mark Forster, the only time that Michael Wilson and Barbara Broccoli were really vehemently against an idea on the film. It was a hard no from the producers, since Bond and Vesper were both orphans themselves, and Bond leaving the kid in the orphanage was just a nasty note to end the film on. Forster wasn't sold on that idea either. He wasn't sure if it would work or not. So instead, he and Haggis worked on a different ending, which had Bond tracking down and assassinating Mr. White, which keen-eyed listeners might remember is literally the same ending as Casino Royale. The name's Bond. James Bond. When he came on board to rewrite the Bond 22 script, Paul Haggis had about six months to work on Sleep of the Dead, around his commitments to his own film in the Valley of Elah, which he directed and which premiered at the Venice Film Festival in September 2007. But in the end, Haggis didn't even have six months. Because while Mark Forster was prepping the film and Haggis was working on the script, the Writers Guild of America were meeting with the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers. And those meetings weren't going well. The Writers Guild might have been talking a big game before negotiations, but the studios really fired the first shot by suggesting completely overhauling the residuals system. Residuals are the payments that writers get every time their work is reused. The easiest way to think about it is that authors get paid for every book they sell, so screenwriters get paid every time their work is seen, whether that's in a TV rerun, a DVD sale, or in an actual ticket to see it at the cinema. Long story short, since they were introduced, residuals have been calculated as a part of gross profits, because the accountants in Hollywood are really good at writing off various expenses and overheads. So good that in 2007, The Simpsons still hadn't officially ever turned a profit. But the AMPTP went to the negotiating table suggesting that the entire residual system should be overhauled to pay out slightly more on net profits, which would have disadvantaged almost every writer in the guild. Negotiations deteriorated fast. It's possible they were never really meant to go well, with both the writers and studios thinking that they would emerge the winner in a strike. From the Writers Guild's perspective, they held all the power. A strike would show how valuable they were, shutting down an entire industry by cutting out one piece, proving that they were worth more than the relatively small changes that they were asking for. And from the studio's perspective, they held all the money. The writers would eventually come crawling back because while they didn't work, they didn't earn, and you can't eat the moral high ground. There was a rush of last-minute negotiations with talks extended past the Halloween expiration of the WGA's contract with the studios. But when midnight hit on the East Coast on November 5th, the Writers Guild East put down their pencils. This was the final straw for the studio negotiating team on the West Coast, who refused to discuss anything further if the East was on strike. 
And also on the West Coast, Paul Haggis raced to finish his draft of Sleep of the Dead. He handed it in around 10pm Pacific Standard Time, two hours before the strike began in LA, and one hour after it started in New York. From that point on, until the strike ended, Haggis and Purvis and Wade could not touch the script. No writer who was or ever wanted to be a member of the Writers Guild of America could touch it. No writer who wanted healthcare and a pension scheme and a union job in Hollywood could so much as take a meeting about it. And that is where we're going to leave it for now. Next time on Striking Out, the Writers Guild of America goes on strike. And Bond 22 goes into production with an unfinished script. Striking Out is a new season of Going Rogue, written and presented by Tansy Gardam, with editorial assistance from Charles O'Grady and Christian Byers. Our music is by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech and Shane Ivers from Silverman Sound Studios. And our logo uses a photo by Annika Mickelson. You can follow the show on Twitter at goingrogue underscore pod, and you can follow me at Tansy Clipboard. I want to give special credit this episode to Matthew Field and AJ Chowdhury for their book, Some Kind of Hero, which is an exhaustive history of the entire James Bond series. And I also want to thank all the James Bond fan sites that reported on every single development of Quantum of Solace back in the mid-2000s. They've actually saved a lot of information that has since been lost to internet time and wasn't even accessible via the internet archive anymore. And this episode really couldn't have happened without them. Also, sorry about the two-parter. This was genuinely intended to be a one-part episode. It was actually meant to cover both Quantum of Solace and Justice League Mortal. But because of who I am as a person, this is going to be a two-parter. 